From 90.7 WFAE, this is a special edition of Charlotte Talks, a public conversation, unrest in the Queen City one year later. I'm Mike Collins. We're coming to you from Spirit Square's McGlowan Theater in downtown Charlotte. At this time, a year ago tonight, September 20th, 2016, just hours after the shooting by police of Keith Lamont Scott, a group of demonstrators began to gather at Old Concord Road in the University City area. By the next night, those protests would filter into downtown Charlotte, building in intensity, eventually becoming a riot, or as some prefer to call it, resistance. Whatever you call it, the response to the shooting put Charlotte in a national spotlight in a way it had never been before and shook the city to its core. It started conversations in every nook and cranny of our town, indeed across the state, that continue today and which will certainly continue over the next two hours. We all have a stake in where these conversations take us, and that is why this program is being broadcast statewide. In addition to Charlotte and Hickory, we're joined by listeners from Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, Fayetteville, and points in between, thanks to our friends at WUNC. The purpose of this special two-hour Charlotte Talks is not to rehash the events of last year, but to look more closely at what has come from the shooting and the disturbances and soul-searching that followed, as well as what is left to do. However, before we do that, a brief reminder of what brought us here tonight. This has been a difficult couple of days for the city of Charlotte. Please don't let them break the windows. Come on out the car. Keith, don't do it. Keith, get out the car. Keith, Keith, don't you do it. Don't you do it. Keith, 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 don't you do it. Did you shoot him? Did you shoot him? Did you shoot him? I'm not gonna come near you. I'm gonna record though. I'm not coming near you. I'm gonna record though. He better be alive because I'm Roughly 1,000 protesters marched through portions of the university area last night and early this morning in response to a police shooting death of an African American man. The victim is 43-year-old Keith Lamont Scott. Shahida Whiteside, a student at Central Piedmont Community College, says she came out to join the protest and is frustrated. I can't watch another black man getting shot on, on another Facebook page, another newscast. I can't keep watching it happen. And then not, nobody else is doing nothing about it. And just as the 11 o'clock freight train passed, protesters began throwing rocks and water bottles at police and smashing in the windows of police cruisers, some so badly they had to be towed from the scene. And then, all at once, police in riot gear donned gas masks and helmets and began shooting rounds of tear gas into the crowd. About 100 people stood in silent protest in front of Bank of America headquarters at the end of the workday. Signs read, legalize being black, stop killing my brothers, and black lives matter. As the crowd grew, people began chanting. Being black is not a crime. Being black is not a crime. Then they marched, first to police headquarters for more chanting, and then to Marshall Park, where a larger and more disorganized protest gathered. 
There were hundreds of protesters on the street last night. Originally, it was about the police shooting death of a 43-year-old African-American named Keith Lamont Scott. But the anger over Scott's death was quickly overtaken when word of last night's shooting spread from person to person. They again blamed the police. They want to hurt us. The situation escalated. More riot police were called in, banging their batons against their shields as they walked in line before stopping at an intersection, where protesters met them, yelling just inches from the officers' faces. The police stood silently for a time, then threw concussion grenades and tear gas canisters. A steady breeze carried the gas throughout the crowd. The protesters retreated down the street, regrouped, and went back again and again. Here comes round three of tear gas. The crowd is now throwing them back. The Charlotte Mecklenburg police officer who shot and killed an African-American man in September will not face any charges. Mecklenburg County's DA said today all the evidence supports Officer Brentley Vincent's claim that he felt threatened. In the days that followed Mr. Scott's death, we watched as long simmering frustrations boiled over. I heard observers say, this is not Charlotte. This is not the city that we love. But it is. This is Charlotte. This is where our friends, families, neighbors, and colleagues felt so passionate that they marched on our streets to call for change. But the fact that criminal charges are not appropriate under the law in this particular case does not mean we can dismiss the concerns expressed by those who raise their voices to raise the consciousness of this community. I think it's high time that all of us recognize that this is Charlotte and not everyone experiences the same Charlotte. That last voice was that of Mecklenburg County District Attorney Andrew Murray stating something that might not have been obvious to much of the city a year ago. The fact that not everyone experiences the same Charlotte is a realization that emerged from last year's disturbances and served as a wake-up call to work toward change. So tonight, we examine three key areas, economic opportunity and how it impacted the unrest as well as what is being done to address economic disparities, Activism, not just during the disturbance, but in the days and months afterward, was this the catalyst for people to engage with others in the city to make improvements? And of course, policing, which here and around the country has been undergoing scrutiny. What is being done to build trust and will reforms work for both police and the citizenry? And that is where we start. We're joined by Vicki Foster, Assistant Chief of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department. Thank you for being here tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Robert Dawkins is the state organizer for Safe Coalition NC. That's a nonprofit founded in 2013 to promote police accountability. Welcome back. Thanks, Mike. And because the events of last year did not spring out of nowhere, because they have deep-seated roots, we'll be hearing throughout the program from Brenda Tyndall. She is the staff historian at the Levine Museum of the New South. Welcome back to you as well. Thank you so much for having me. Vicki, let me start with you, Vicki Foster. Uh, due to the rash of violence, uh, or the rash of videos, I should say, that are usually taken by camera phones and by bystanders to these incidents involving police, the nation at large has been exposed over time to the confrontations between police and usually uh, black men. 
And we're seeing something that the black community has known about for a very long time, which came as news to many people who are not in that community. And of course, the Scott shooting followed on the heels of many of those incidents last year uh, that were on television. So how would you assess your department's, um, uh, your department's uh, interactions with the African-American community in our city then mm -hmm. and now? Well, I think, you know, after the riots, we took a look at what we've always known is that there's still distrust within the Afro-American community. And so what we learned was that it was a little deeper than what we thought. And our focus since then has been on continuing to build relationships in our Afro-American communities. And so we've done a lot of different things. And some of those things have worked really well. Um, and some of those things were continuing to improve. You know, one of the things that we did right after the riots were we started um, construction conversation teams. What we learned was that people wanted to be heard and people were not being heard um, at that particular time. And we learned that that was one of the key elements is that people want to be heard. They want to be able to express their feelings. And so these teams now, if we have an incident, um, we have 40 plus officers trained that actually deploy to the actual incident. And they are the ones that talk to citizens and try to tell them, you know, okay, what's going on? And, and try to let, offer, let, let citizens understand exactly what's going on because at that particular time, they're not able to get the answers that they want. So we've had two black police chiefs. You're an assistant police chief. You're right. also African-American. Mm -hmm. Does it, what, what is, when, when things like this happen, when you see these shootings on television and, when you, and you're at the head of your own departments, mm -hmm. what do you think? What goes through your mind? Well, you know, for me, and I can only speak on myself, I mean, anytime um, I see a officer-involved shooting, whether it's CMPD or across the country, I mean, obviously I'm disheartened. Um, I do think that there are shootings that have really, really caused some serious problems in our community because there were not uh, what people would consider to be justice. And so I will say that every time I see that, I'm concerned, um, depending on the circumstances of that actual particular shooting. Um, you know, I have questions just as well as anybody else. You know, I'm still human. Even though I'm a police officer, I'm still human. Um, so I'm, I'm always disheartened by officer-involved shootings. If there has been anything good that has come out of this shooting and, and the, all of the other shootings, it is that there is a raised public awareness about things that have been well known in the African American community. And Robert Dawkins, one of those things is profiling. Uh, a lot of African Americans allege that they're pulled over by police or followed through department stores by security guards because of the color of their skin. And your organization, Safe Coalition NC, has been working on what you uh, working on ending what you call discriminatory profiling. How prevalent would you say that has been in Charlotte and throughout North Carolina? It's been prevalent since 1865 <laughs> in every city and every state of the country. Um, what, what we found from, what Charlotte found from Keith Lamont Scott's what African Americans has known for years, that there is a basis for us to say that there, that there is mistrust with us from the police department. I mean, this goes back from, you know, slavery and slave catchers to peonage to uh, all of the other things that the police department and the sheriff's department were the legalized 
people to round up African Americans and to punish African Americans. And I think that the police department is making an attempt to uh, fix that history, but every time more incidents like this happens, it pulls that Band-Aid off again. But you work around the state, if I I'm, if I'm understand this correctly. You work around the state. So are there areas of the state that are more receptive to seeing this as a problem that has been ongoing and, and want to work to fix it? Are there areas of the state reluctant to do that? So there are cities in the state that may pay more attention and may, may pay more lip service to it like a Asheville, a Chapel Hill, a Durham, but at the same time, they pay more attention to it, they speak more about it, and within the same month, somebody that's African-American will still be beat, arrested, or shot by police. So I don't think that that's helped fix the problem either. Some say this stems from racism. Some say it stems from fear. Perhaps it stems from both. There seems to be a fear in the, some of the people in the public of African-American men in particular, particularly at night and, and in certain situations. Uh, Brenda, you were at the Levine Museum of the New South. You've done uh, lots of exhibits on this. You've done more programs probably than we have on this issue. Uh, where does this suspicion of African-Americans and this fear of African-American men come from historically? Historically, um, I think to, um, to your point, um, that, that it's really deeply um, embedded in the history of slavery. Um, and um, I would argue that um, you know, the 13th Amendment in particular, which was meant to um, provide the constitutional teeth um, for the uh, dismantling of the institution of slavery, the 13th Amendment actually has a loophole that criminalizes um, black men in particular. Um, and so when we talk about the ways in which that suspicion is um, sort of nurtured, I mean, it's in our legislation. It is in our um, social mores. It is in, um, it's in the ground. Um, so most of us not don't, an invention of the contemporary period, right? I, I would wager that most of us don't know that about the Constitution. So if we don't know it, how is it that we have it in our genes? Um, I don't know that I'm, I'm suggesting that it's in our genes. What I'm suggesting is that the laws often um, inform the, um, the social um, realities. Is there any empirical evidence, historically speaking, that justifies this fear? Absolutely not. I knew you would say that, <laughs> but I wanted to ask the question. Uh, Kerr Putney, CMPD Chief Kerr Putney, uh, promised to take steps to ease the tensions that we saw last year with these protests and riots. The city hired uh, an organization called the Police Foundation, a group out of Washington, to study the department. Their report has yet to be released, I'm told. Putney says that CMPD has changed nonetheless. Critics say reforms haven't happened. So while we've been waiting for this Police Foundation report, what has CMPD done, Dickie Foster, to improve things? So, you know, as I started talking about just the construction teams, you know, we did transparency workshops. What we found is that a lot of people felt during the riots that we weren't being transparent. Um, they felt that we were not telling everything. And so we started doing transparency workshops, which are for our citizens. It is an abbreviated Citizens Academy where they can come out and learn why we do what we do, 
learn about our policies, learn about our procedures, so they can understand sometimes, not always, because no matter what, people are not gonna always understand why we do what we do. But we did do those workshops and we are continuing to do those. We've had over 100 citizens to go through those. Um, we implemented de-escalation training, which we have always done de-escalation training. It was within other areas of our training. We now have a specific block that is two hours that all officers have gone through um, for de-escalation training. Um, on top of, you know, the chief does so many community forums. Um, he's out in the community as often as he possibly can, and they're very open and candid forums, if you've ever attended, where he gives people the opportunity to ask what they want to ask. Is it making a difference, do you think? I think he's making a big difference because whenever you are able to ask the leader of an organization whatever you want to ask and you get an answer, I absolutely think he's making a difference. One of the th Go ahead, Robert. Did you want to jump in there? And I do think the chief has done wonderful with things with having these transparency workshops. But you have workshops, you talk about transparency, but transparency, you've got to be either totally transparent mm -hmm. or you're not going to be transparent at all and there's no middle ground. So at the same time that you have transparency workshops, you have in January the shooting of Josue Diaz, and the police department doesn't want to release that video. And they say they don't want to release the video because the officer was undercover. Well, you could block out the officer's face and still show the video. Then last week, when Citizens Review Board made recommendations, we didn't get all of the recommendations. We only got part recommendations. Mm -hmm. So transparency has to be 360. It can't be half of that, or you'll never build public trust. Hmm. One of the things that you mentioned a second ago uh, was that, that you want people to understand how the police works and why they do the things they do. And one of the big questions a lot of people have is why do police have to resort more times than not, it seems, mm -hmm. to the use of deadly force? We have tasers and things like that. So. And many times this deadly force is used against minorities, not just black people, but other minorities. It, it seems that way to outsiders. From your point of view, is that what it is? Well, what I can tell you is when you say use more times than not, we have over 600,000 contacts, close contacts, with citizens every day. So regardless, one officer-involved shooting is too many, but when you say more often than not, that's a little misleading because we work 24 hours a day, 365 days a year with contacts with citizens all day. So it's what we see It's on what television. you see, and, it, and it's the ones that are the most important. I mean, someone losing their life is the most important, that's the most important piece. But to say that is a, it's a little misleading because we have 600,000 contacts with citizens a year. So that's a little misleading. Okay, Robert? Yeah. And Again, I agree with Assistant Chief, but like Citizens Review Board, we can't just talk about officer-involved shootings. There's cases that either just go to the uh, sergeant level, which are smaller infractions, to larger cases that get heard by command staff, to cases that make it to internal affairs. So mm -hmm. the whole experience of being disenfranchised and profiled isn't just a police shooting. It's also a traffic stop. It's also being at the bus terminal and the transit police treat people a different way. It's um, you know going in the neighborhoods that they don't believe that you should be in and having a stop that you can't justify, even though now we're doing articulable reasons for traffic stops. Uh, 
there's still that as a thing. So I don't want it all to be confined to the two or three police shootings. This is an encompassing problem that African Americans and Latinos and LGBTQ people go through daily. Which it, raises the temperature of any contact with police, does it not? Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. um, your organization worked on reforms in 2012 on the Citizen uh, Re Review Board, and those reforms led to, uh, I'm told, more cases, including the Scott case, to be granted fact-finding hearings. But in all the years of its existence, the Citizen Review, Review Board has never sided against the police. And in the most recent situation with uh, uh, the Scott shooting, uh, the Review Board took the side of Chief Putney saying that the officer in, in involved had, had the right to do what he did. He was, he was following policy, he was within, within, within policy of, of doing what he did. Um, but they did that on a 4-4 split decision. That's because the entire complement of the board wasn't there for, I think, a slightly specious reasons. So given their record, uh, has the board always sided with police because police have always been right? and done the right thing, or is there a fundamental problem with the Citizen Review Board? There's a fundamental problem with the Citizens Review Board. First problem, first problem with the Citizens Review Board is it's not an independent police board. It's a board that you are making, that is hearing, uh, following up on an internal affairs investigation, and basically what you're trying to do is poke holes in the internal affairs in violation, uh, uh, the internal affairs decision. It has no power to go in and independently investigate its own cases. It has no subpoena power to subpoena witnesses to come before it. And of course, it's a uh, advisory board, so it can't make any decisions to uh, terminate or discipline an officer. Hmm. How does the police review the police advisory board, the citizen review board? How does police view the citizens yeah. review board? I mean, I don't know that I can answer how police view the citizens review board. I mean... And they've never sided against you, so I mean... Well, it's not about whether they side against us or whether they, you know, side, you know, for us or against us. I mean, we are appreciative of the fact that there is an independent group that takes a look at the investigation. I mean, the people that are on the, that board are not people that we selected. It's not people we put on the board. Um, so, you know, even though people don't want to say it's an independent board, we don't have, you know, connections. We didn't have anything to do with the people that are on there. And I, I will say this, I do think that from the Civil Service Board to the Citizen Review Board, I do think you have to look at anybody's motive that wants to be on any board, and whether that is pro-police and whether that is against police officers. So I do think that that's one of the things that needs to be looked at, and there's not really many qualifications to be on the board. Um, I, I, will, will we ever hear the full recommendations that they put out following the Keith Scott shooting? Will we ever see those recommendations? I mean, I can't answer that because I'm not the chief of police, okay. but I will tell you that, you know, being transparent is what he does. So I can't tell you what will actually be I have released. A, I have a minute left in this segment, and transparency is one of the big things to come out of this shooting of last year. And right. there's a new law on the books that prevents police from releasing the videos from body and dash cams and even security cameras, not even elected officials can see them Correct. without the permission of a judge. Correct. Is that a wise law given the political tenor and the, and the frustration seething throughout the community? 
Well, I'm not going to say that it's a wise law. I mean, because the people that need to see it immediately, such as the family, the people that are involved, um, they do have the ability to petition to see it. Um, you know, whether it's, it's right for it to have to go to a judge to be released, I don't know. But what I will tell you is that if you leave that in the hands of individual police chiefs, and then you will have a difference in who releases what and who doesn't. So I think that there had to be some type of law with some type of requirements as to when and how you release a video. So I do agree that you had to have some type of, of rules as to when you can. You have 10 seconds. <laughs> That's not exactly how the law is worded. The law is worded that the police chief gets to make a decision if your image is captured in the video to release the video. Within 36 hours, if you do not uh, grant it, then you can ask a judge to have the video released. It's Robert Dawkins with Safe Coalition North Carolina, Vicki Foster, uh, Assistant Chief of CMPD. They will return later in the program, as will Brenda Tyndall, a staff historian at the Levine Museum of the New South. When we come back, activists and the role they played in responding to the shooting of Keith Scott a year ago today and the role they've attempted to play in changing the status quo since that day. This is Charlotte Talks on WFAE.